to the Tag Your It podcast. I'm Ray Ray. And I am Dave. And we have a special guest in the studio with us tonight. You have uh, seen him debate. He is called in and yet he, he is here. Again, his name is Travis Herinick. He is a part of the Missouri Baptist Apologetics Network with uh, I and Dave. So welcome again to the studio, Travis. How are you doing this evening? Doing great. Thanks for having me tonight, guys. Yes, doing great despite. So to let you guys know, um, we did not go live with this. This is an exclusive podcasting material um, this evening just because uh, we've had some awesome technical difficulties. But we're still able to give you um, a little show um, tonight because we really wanted to hit uh, the debate that take took place between Dave and Phil Kahlberg a few weeks ago on January 6th over the inerrancy of scripture. Is it a range or scale of concepts? Um, so that's what we sort of wanted to discuss tonight with all the difficulties. We can't have the debate commentary, which we will end up eventually getting to. Um, but we still wanted to talk about it and kind of get uh, sort of the air out post debate. So, um, Firstly, I just kind of want to turn to Dave and just uh, kind of be like, hey, Dave, what, um, you know, how do you feel after the debate? Do you feel that you um, were clear and, uh, you know, as far as taking in the arguments after the closing um, statement from Phil, you know, how do you feel that he took you, I guess you could say? Yeah. So first, want to make sure that I thank everyone who came. Man, exciting to see how many people were in the room for the debate. Mm-hmm. That was really encouraging. I know that Phil brought a good group of folks, but we had folks from uh, all over Springfield, folks from Bolivar that didn't go to church with Phil, so that mm-hmm. was way awesome. Very encouraging. I think that there was an excitement in the room that I certainly felt and definitely felt a clarity of thought, and I know that was because people were praying for me, so that was a big thing. And Big thanks to Tim and to you, Adam, and of course to Travis, and want to thank Phil for being there too. It was a lot of fun. So as far as clarity of thought, you know, I really do think that the debate began with, with four arguments, really, and he asserted real clearly from the outset that uh, language and biblical language is imprecise, mm-hmm. that uh, contemporary understanding of error is um, a problem, and he also argued that inerrancy resides in the intended meaning of the authors, and that the all-or-nothing approach encourages people to invest their own interpretations with the authority of Scripture. Uh, Big thanks to Phil for being so clear, but I do feel like I demonstrated very clearly that language is an effective, spoken and written language is an effective carrier of meaning. If that wasn't true, Phil wouldn't have showed up to the debate, right? He presupposed that what he was going to say was going to be able to be understood by the audience, and he presupposed that his arguments were going to make sense. So while he critiqued language, he did he used language to do that, and therefore demonstrated just a faultiness of his argument. Uh, Regarding contemporary understanding of error, again, all you need to do is read Article 13 of the uh, Chicago Statement. I believe that nobody who affirms inerrancy or total inerrancy, if you want to be real specific, 1978 inerrancy, 
would find error where Phil is trying to find error. Mm -hmm. And this idea of inerrancy residing in the intended meaning is uh, neo-Orthodox type of thinking and uh, very problematic if you ask me. I would certainly tell you that, no, the locus of inspiration is the written text. And therefore, there is meaning behind the words, but the ultimate arbiter of meaning is the text itself. Mm -hmm. uh, further, this all-or-nothing approach uh, causes people to invest their own interpretations with the authority of Scripture. Uh, I would tell you that if you use a historical grammatical approach to exegeting Scripture, it's not going to be perfect, but it is the best tools we have for doing that. And I think that I demonstrated that that, that Phil really failed to make what I would say was an affirmative case. He attacked my case from the outset and never really made, in my mind, an affirmative case for his position. Mm -hmm. So according to debate, debate proper, he certainly, in my mind, would have lost the debate on that. How does that sound? <laughs> oh, no, I think that was beautiful because, you know, it is really hard um, if you're not an experienced debater. You want to go on the defense. And so that's what I got from the outset, too, was the fact that he was going, um, I'm going to go ahead and, like you said, attack inerrancy, um, presupposing that people know what that means, um, yes. instead of just giving a clear, concise, here's my position um, without, and I mean, this is kind of like, uh, you know, me um, just say, here's an example, you know, I'm reading, a, like, I'm reading books uh, on theonomy. Um, from mm -hmm. Gary North, and I find them, and it's just a, it's so political or po so polemical. I can't tell what the meaning of theonomy is mm -hmm. through his writing. So the same thing in this debate. There's so many polemics going on here. He's not setting up a a case. And I think, uh, Travis, this is what you were saying uh, as you came in. We were talking about this before recording. Like, uh, what are your thoughts as an audience uh, member that evening? Yeah, um, one thing I can say I really appreciated about Phil is is he came in organized. Um, now, Dave kind of already pointed out, I would say three out of the four points that he opened up with, with his uh, uh, opening statements were negative. So he did present a negative case uh, right out of the gate. But I appreciated that he was organized. Uh, it made the debate flow well. Um, I thought that he did a good job of presenting his ideas, whether we agree with his ideas or not. I, I thought uh, that was well. I thought uh, both Dave and Phil did a great job of, of communicating their thoughts uh, in a way that they could be understood. Um, they didn't try to get lofty above the level of people's understanding in the mm -hmm. room. Uh, I think most everybody in the room really appreciated the overall atmosphere of the debate for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it, it, like we said, even there, you know, it was like very cordial um, with uh, Tim and I being mm -hmm. our first time moderated. Everything went awesome, you know, with the little yep. bumps that we had anyway, as far as like, you know, technicality issues. But yes, he was it, it was very brotherly. It was very, you know, that that's that's the that was the gospel in motion when we see a debate. Yeah. Um, you know, agree, disagree, either either side. So, um, I guess from Dave, uh, your standpoint, um, what was that sort of? I guess if you could summarize down, what is the major um, problem? Um, yeah. So I would actually again, and I hope I'm not being too like uh, nuanced in saying this, but according to debate proper the criterion for the debate was never engaged, right? He never presented a counter criterion. So in doing so, he accepts my criterion. 
or the weighing mechanism, which was, again, the preponderance of evidence. And evidence was scripture. Uh, we needed to appeal, to appeal to scripture. Because he never demonstrated or told us why that criterion or weighing mechanism was improper for a Christian to use, because I'm assuming, again, that you're wanting to argue this and contend it as a Christian. And so when he dealt with the evidence, right, he never showed from Scripture that his position was one that could be held, right? He never demonstrated that for Jesus, when he said, um, for example, in John 17, 17, um, sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth, that Jesus had some type of a dynamic understanding of the word truth there, right? He never demonstrates, and, and, and I just, actually, you he, know, uh, I've got my, go he, for it, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, he does actually do a dynamic one there, but it's wrong. Um, mm -hmm. He said that, uh, well, the word there for word, um, you know, well, he's the word and stuff like that, but he didn't bring you into the context whenever he says that, Father, you gave me the words, and I have given them the words therefore he moves on not just praying for the apostles but those for those who believe because of their what words that jesus had mm -hmm. given them that are the words from the father so we should know that whenever god speaks it is authoritative it is clear it is necessary you know all those points that we just talked about uh, you know in the past you know month and a half on our podcast so you know you caught him in a moment where he should have been really understanding what John 17 in its full context, which is the whole problem again with Hosea. Um, you know, whenever a Jewish person would read uh, this fulfills the prophecy, they wouldn't just proof text the thing and go, oh, see over here. No, they would read the whole passage because why? We didn't have verse marks in the original manuscripts. Mm -hmm. And so they were, he was aligning them. Here's where Hosea talked about getting them out of the taken my son is you know i called my son out of egypt and they would have read the whole prophecy which would lead to the fulfillment of christ in that so well, yeah, i mean there's and, so and many things there but just yes. a, a key piece to me and i did not use this passage in the debate and i kick myself now for not doing it but in john 12 verse 48 jesus says the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So Jesus presupposes right there that his words are going to be the ultimate standard by which people are judged. Mm -hmm. And so to jump back to the criterion of the debate, Jesus uh, assumes that the words that he has spoken are clear enough, are sufficient enough, are authoritative enough to judge people. Mm -hmm. And therefore, they are a standard by which we can evaluate things. And because he never demonstrates that Jesus, again, never purely is able to demonstrate that Jesus had, again, a dynamic view of truth, a uh, concern that his words were not enough or clear enough, um, he would have to have demonstrated that in the debate, and he didn't. And therefore, in my mind, if the debate, if people are listening to the debate, if people are flowing the debate, the very fact that he really kind of, for the most part, allowed my criterion to go unrefuted, he would have dropped the debate in that very piece. And again, debate, debate proper, that's an a priori piece. That's a mm -hmm. first level uh, weighing mechanism is what is the criterion for the debate? So the evidence that he presented was comp just completely fell flat because it wasn't from Scripture. He couldn't prove his position from Scripture. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, one of the things that uh, Adam had mentioned uh, when I came in 
and we talked just briefly, uh, it goes back to the statement that he made. And I believe Phil made this statement in his closing arguments. Uh, he said, measuring scripture with scripture is a logical fallacy. Yes. Um, and then he went on to discuss circular reasoning, which brought us into a whole other point that Adam was yeah. wanting to talk yeah, about. Yeah, and this is, you know, and this is the thing that uh, the audience missed. Um, going As a moderator, looking at all the questions that came in, no, we didn't pick all the questions to ask. You know, there were doubles, whatever. Um, there were some off-topic ones. But nobody asked the running gag of the whole debate. Um, it was mentioned a few times between you and Phil. Um, you, Phil dealt heavily with it because he was against it. Um, but that's why I asked my question was the fact that the audience missed it. It was mentioned by you guys. But Dave, you know, you didn't really deal with it because you have presuppositions. You didn't have to deal with it. You were trying to progress something versus really defending anything because he was actually negating. And I mean, we had, it was a... It was a very dynamic debate. But anyway, so I asked the question um, in the Q&A time about circular reasoning because nobody picked up on it. And I asked, you know, is circular reasoning valid? And how do you know that? And it's that good site in Bruggenkate, you know, bring a laugh question if somebody um, really gets that fact. How do you know that circular reasoning, reasoning is valid or not valid? Um, either either way. And I mean, it was really telling um, that uh, circular reasoning to him, you know, he, he, he said, well, if you look at any textbook, no, it is not valid. It is a fallacious thing. And I'm like, wait a second. He never gave me the answer. How do you know that other than the implicit, which would be a textbook? Okay, who wrote the textbook? Why is it whose authority says that circular reasoning is valid? And then he'll say, well, you know, you can say, well, if uh, somebody tells you well, because I said so, this therefore it's so. Well, then that begs the question: Who are they? Well, in this situation, who is God? That's um, right. He is. He is from a naturalistic perspective. He is lowering down God into the realm of creation and not creator. And so, you know, so this is why we need to talk about that circular reasoning thing because actually, it is valid. And he should have said, "Well, it is valid." And if he didn't like that position, well, it's valid, but it's not sound. That should have been the words he used because an argument is valid if the conclusion comes from the premise. It is technically a valid argument. It is fallacious. Why? When it's arbitrary. So is there a non-arbitrary circular argument? And then this is the whole presuppositional platform from which we spring. Who says? Whose authority? And, you know, if you're taking a random chance natural material worldview, which is what he has to do whenever he's evaluating scripture. This is Dave, you talking about bringing in those um, other standards by which to judge scripture. Um, this is the worldview from which he takes those things to judge scripture. But if scripture is the words of God, they bear his um, being. And who That's he right. is as creator. And so he didn't really like that. Um, I think you're conflating, um, you know, ontology with, uh, I forgot, epistemology. epistemology. Yeah. yeah. But the thing is, if I say something and I write it down, I said that. So if I'm, if I'm a king and I write a document that's a decree for my nation, if I write something down, it's authoritative. It should be clear and sufficient. But then again, at the same time, under God, I'm still a creature. Therefore, I can be wrong. I can be mistaken. 
But if God is not wrong, if he is not mistaken, if he does not lie, um, if, we, if he has revealed himself, and he has, then we have to start with that God as he has revealed himself, and we don't get to sit in judgment over his words and what he reveals about reality, which is what Phil is doing. Now, you guys can go and discuss that. Yeah, go for it, Travis. Well, yeah, I think it just uh, it, it brings us back to, like Adam already said, the, the basis of presupposition. Um, if we're going to presuppose God as God's word presupposes God, then we have to accept it uh, at that level. If we begin to take a naturalistic view, if we begin to uh, engage Scripture with philosophy and then use philosophy as the weighing mechanism, which was uh, Phil's primary argument, uh, in my mind, was that uh, you must use philosophical means of engaging Scripture. Uh, At that point, you make philosophy your God. Uh, mm-hmm. No longer is God God. Uh, not to say that Phil does not believe in God and not to take away from uh, his belief in Christ or any of that. I, I recognize him as a brother, but I think in this he's got a flawed position mm-hmm. um, because he can he cannot maintain that position uh, even consistently. Um, even in delivering the gospel, he really can't maintain that position because he is now as like Adam said, he's now trying to make the word an arbitrary thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you just can't consistently hold that position and hold the position that God is God. Yeah. Uh, it's just impossible. Uh, that's where actually you see a real, uh, actually a true logical fallacy right there. Yeah. Uh, if, it's, if it's rooted in a finite being, it's totally. So this is why we say like empiricism based on naturalism, based on I have reason that my reasoning is valid by using my reasoning. Yeah. You are a fallible, finite creature. Therefore, no, we can't believe it whenever somebody says, I said so, therefore it's so. Mm-hmm. But it's not arbitrary if it is the one who created the reality that is. And you have to believe that as a Christian, yeah. that God created. He said, let there be light. There was light. You know, so based on whose authority, I'm not an ultimate authority, but God's an ultimate authority. Therefore, circular reasoning is not arbitrary. Therefore, it is valid and it is sound. Therefore, you know, you can't prove anything without God. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, And I think Dave did a good job of pointing that out. Mm. Um, I forget the question that Phil had asked specifically, but but Dave went straight to... uh, the accepted historically valid hermeneutical view of understanding the scriptures. Uh, and, and he, uh, you did a good job there with that, mm-hmm. Dave, I think pointing out that we have hermeneutics for a reason. Um, these are tried and true rules that we use to approach the scripture. Why do they work? Well, first they start with the presupposition that because God said, God mm-hmm. said. Uh, there That's is right. no arbitrary position to hold. So I thought you did a great job with that, Dave, in going there. Um, the other thing that I picked up on that Phil uh, brought out is, in a, and I don't want to misquote him, so I, I'm just going to paraphrase uh, what I understood him to say, was essentially that equating inerrancy and inspiration is a flawed position to hold 
you know, in, if you go back to the resurgence, uh, you go back to the book that Tom Nettles and L. Russ Bush wrote, uh, Baptists in the Bible, uh, went back and historically showed how Baptists have always actually equated inerrancy and inspiration. You can't have one without the other, essentially. Um, That's right. So, and, and I thought you kind of kind of went there. You didn't, uh, I don't think you actually talked about the resurgence specifically, did you, Dave? No, no. But uh, I think you addressed that, uh, and I thought you did a great job going back historically, which uh, I found it interesting that Phil immediately argued back and said, he, he immediately argued back and said, well, historically that didn't happen after you had already laid out your case. And I was I was kind of confused in that portion of the debate on Phil's comments. Uh, do you recall that, what I was talking yeah, in his in his rebuttal, he contended, and I think he even appealed to it in his closing statement, that inerrancy is a new idea and we need to reject it. And further, it's not the historical position of the church. Everyone I cited was a, a recent theologian. Calvin was a recent theologian. Problem is, Phil was, and I believe is, Ignorant, and I don't say that in a mean way, I say it in the actual meaning of the term, is ignorant of the writings of Calvin, because if you read Calvin, who is he quoting? He's quoting from Augustine over and over and over again. And further, I also talked about Thomas Aquinas, another early church father. And so these statements about, about the inspiration of Scripture and Scripture being fully authoritative and fully true— that didn't just start with the Reformers. The Reformers looked back on early church writers and saw throughout the history of the church that this was the belief. And so that was just a real—to me, I didn't like that argument because I didn't think that it was accurate. Not only did I not think it, I had already demonstrated that it wasn't accurate. He just made an assertion, and he didn't prove or quote from anybody in order to do that. He also attacked me for using church history as mm -hmm. a means— by which to uh, affirm inerrancy. No, I was demonstrating exactly. that they believed in inerrancy. I wasn't saying that inerrancy existed because they said so. I was saying they believed in it because it was in Scripture. And, and you so were utilizing that, was, that because he utilized history, and he was wanting oh, yeah. that history. And so, yeah, yeah, like I— I just got like I got done listening to the first half debate before we started this, and I was right there, and I'm sitting there just going, "No, Dave was not using using that as a basis for his understanding of inerrancy. He was just going, it's not just me. Mm -hmm. It's not just say the conservative resurgence or the uh, the Chicago statement framers and signers. You know, this doesn't go back to the 80s. This doesn't go back to the 1700s, 1600s, um, 1300s." It goes, you know, you can go to the 300s and then, but what is the basis? And Dave, you, the whole time, the Bible, you know, mm -hmm. Peter um, and his message in Acts, it was grammatical, historical hermeneutics. You were basing it on scripture. We can utilize history and it's an important thing, but your basis the whole time was scripture tells me, God tells me. And so, yeah, that whenever that that's why, like, I'm so mad right now because I was like, oh man, I just heard that. No, that was that was a fallacious attack against you because you were not utilizing that as a basis. Yeah, and I would say that uh, uh, Phil's overall view, at least the way he presented himself. Now, I don't know Phil uh, personally, and I and I haven't uh, read any of his papers or listened to his podcast uh, at this point. Though I am going to try to give that a listen and. 
but I would say that his position on church history um, was a little skewed uh, anyway. Um, I, I, I think, you know, as apologists, uh, we look to church history. Uh, why do we do that? We look to it to see uh, how Christians in history have uh, interpreted things in the Bible, how they have viewed the scriptures, um, how they have understood the original meanings of passages and things of that nature. Um, it, you know, we get uh, we get theological uh, and doctrinal basis from that in some ways, uh, mm. though if we can't tie that back to scripture accurately, then obviously we go, wait, hold on, we're chasing the wrong direction. Um, but it was almost as though uh, Phil just wanted to throw church history out. It, the mm-hmm. way that I viewed his arguments in the debate, I don't know if you guys uh, felt the same about that, but that's kind of how I took uh, his arguments. Yeah, well, not only that, and I think that's a great assessment. The other thing he, and I hope that I demonstrated this, when he tells you that inerrancy is a new thing, therefore it needs to be rejected, not only has he not proven that, he then has now discredited the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Uh, mm-hmm. That's not only the 78 Chicago statement, but as I pointed out, the Danvers statement, the Nashville statement. Mm-hmm. Why are those statements written by a group of evangelicals. They're written there because those are issues that are we are dealing with in this day. I mean, again, I'm a big fan of the uh, statement on artificial intelligence, right? It wasn't celebrated near as much as the Nashville statement or the Denver statement, but man, I think the uh, statement on artificial intelligence is spot on, right? Of course Paul is not writing a statement on artificial intelligence. Of course, Augustine isn't. Of course, Calvin isn't. Uh, of course, uh, and, uh, uh, Athanasius isn't. Of course, Ignatius isn't, right? Why not? It wasn't something they even dreamed of, but they gave us a basis in Scripture for being able to deal with the issues of our day. And that's the unchanging nature of God's Word. It provides. It's sufficient. And therefore, the problem is with Phil. Phil doesn't believe that it is sufficient to clarify those things and the problems of the day. Mm-hmm. Well, so making that statement, Dave, that was one of the questions that I had for you. Uh, so Phil's position is uh, essentially uh, you must read Scripture from a philosophical platform, essentially. Um, so my question for you is how or, or can you uh, in any way, or is there a, is there a certain way that you can uh, use philosophy in reading the scriptures? Um, if not to the full per, uh, full position of where Phil is, is is there a position which you can use philosophy in reading the scriptures? What's your thought on that? Uh, well, I would say that yeah, obviously you would use a philosophy that is certainly um, found founded in Scripture. So, like, what is good philosophy? Good philosophy is philosophy that accords to what Scripture says, right? Mm-hmm. What is good ethics? Good ethics are ethics according to Scripture as the ultimate authority. The problem is, Phil starts with um, human um, autonomy, and human minds as the ultimate standard for doing philosophy. So therefore, when you pick up 
his philosophical lens, which is not based in scripture, which is a humanistic um, understanding of philosophy, you come to a point where you're beginning with the wrong thing and you'll end up in the wrong place. (laughs) How's that? Yeah, so essentially what you're saying is, you know, when you take a a rationalistic, naturalistic view, uh, you're going to end up in a rationalistic, naturalistic position. Uh, that would be correct, yeah. Whereas you're saying as well that the proper way to do that is you must reason within the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the scriptures must be the basis. So, so you would argue entirely opposite of what Phil said uh, when he said measuring scripture with scripture is a logical fallacy, you would say that is actually the only way yeah. we can measure scripture. That yeah. would be correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, I think, uh, I mean, I think we put a concise point on that, you know, again, where, where we just ended off right there, circular reasoning. And I, you know, I, that's going to be the crux of that whole debate. And I mean, that's, that's what I gathered from the debate, and I think uh, every time that there was something argued, um, you could see circularity from either position, especially you know from his position uh, regarding um, it'd be Acts nine and twenty two, those passages where you have one that says they saw or they see they didn't hear a voice, but or they saw no man, and then they uh, see they saw light but heard no voice. This proves his circularity. Because yes. unfortunately, because what he is contending is like, well, you know, that wasn't an error to them. It was a flat out error, but that wouldn't be considered error. Okay. And it's like, so he is actually a priori already said that that's a contradiction. Therefore, yes. um, the writers themselves didn't mind contradictions to a point. And it's like, only if you assume so, if you assume yes. that's a contradiction, but actually, um, have you looked at the semantical range of the word that is here? Um, I think the ESV, I mean, has he looked at the, why didn't he use the ESV's rendering of those two passages? Because the ESV uses understand for one of the words, not yeah, here. Yeah, and that is the, again, yeah, as you noted very clearly, that is the lexical, um, if you go to the lexicon, you'll see the semantic domain of the word implies and can be understood and is used elsewhere to me, understanding. Yeah, so, so it's not always here. Just like uh, whenever we're talking to other people, all doesn't always mean all. You know, I mean, there's there's right. ranges and meanings to words. And that's why words have meaning. That's why context means something. That's why hermeneutics means something. And so, you know, there. I think that is what shows the circular. The, I mean, that's an example, a major example of his circularity. Um, he doesn't like circularity. I mean, as a Christian, we should not like arbitrary circularity. That's right. But, but we must start somewhere. And the empiricist has to start somewhere. Everybody has to start somewhere. And this is the thing is, is consciously or unconsciously, you have a worldview. You have a philosophy that is unscientifically proven that you have to start with to be able to go anywhere or else you would sit in a chair and just veg and drool all day. (laughs) And so that, that's, that's, that's the point, but we must start somewhere. And what is that starting point that scriptures alone will give you versus what kind of 
starting point are you giving yourself? And again, if you don't start with God saying in the beginning, God said, let there be light. You know, he created the heavens and the earth and he said, let there be light and all that kind of stuff. And you fly through the scriptures and you get thus say it the Lord all the time, right? Um, then you're going to be begging the question of your own reasoning. And then you're in a problem of inference and all this kind of stuff. And science and knowledge and everything is destroyed in that worldview because you can't have it. And if you had it, you wouldn't know it. Yeah. Yeah. And so what you just demonstrated there goes back to Phil's very first argument, which Dave already talked about languages. Uh, Are languages impossible to be understood? Well, Certainly not, but it takes work, and the problem isn't the language. The language speaks clearly. Anybody who read that in its original autograph uh, would have completely understood uh, what Luke was writing there, right? Uh, but we have a problem with language. It's not it's not language that's the problem. It's us that's the problem. It's our lack of understanding, uh, our lack of, of reasoning, uh, within languages and, and our lack of study within yeah. languages. Um, and that goes on to, you know, this kind of ties back into our King James only debate. Uh, you know, uh, translators are not perfect. Uh, the Chicago statement does not argue that every translation of the Bible is inerrant. Uh, it argues that the original autographs oh, are inerrant. And, and that has always been the position in my mind of, inheritance mm-hmm. uh every inheritist has always been arguing concerning the original autographs i don't think anybody uh who has argued for inerrancy uh would ever say that you know the esv or the csb or the king james are 100 percent perfect uh that That's they're right. without our I, I don't know anybody that would yeah. uh and certainly the authors of the Chicago statement were not making that argument. They very specifically, I think it's article eight or nine very specifically says in the original autographs. Yeah. So, uh, and Dave, you did a great job of bringing that out in the debate as well. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, my question would be, you know, to you, Travis, as an audience member, what was some of the areas that maybe you thought I should have pressed a little bit more or some areas where you're like, man, uh, Dave just mopped the floor with him here. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe the opposite. Just, you know, keep him humble. Keep him humble. <laughs> no, uh, one of the things, and this is, you know, different people are going to have different views, certainly. Uh, one, I, I do think the audience appreciated the overall atmosphere, for sure. Yeah. Uh, I thought you both communicated uh, very well with each other. Um one of the things that uh, that I would have liked to hear come out, uh, and I think I had mentioned this to you before, uh, talking about the mustard seed and where he tried to uh, equate that to an error as well, uh, you know, is is the hermeneutical aspect of context, right? Um, yeah. When when you, we look at that passage, uh, you know. I don't know what the smallest seed in the world is. I don't know if one of you guys do. Uh, I, knew that. I knew the answer to this at one point, but the smallest seed we know of yeah. empirically. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. it's the smallest seed that any of the audience Jesus was speaking to would have been aware of because yeah. in their agricultural uh, world where they did live, uh, you know, they, they didn't all go go to the, go to the grocery store. Uh, 
the mustard seed would have been the smallest seed they were familiar with. Yeah. Uh, and so context playing a Yeah, so, so then uh, we get Because that if, came up at the final Yeah, questions. and so if we're wanting to make a contradiction, then we have to realize what is the law of non-contradiction, and exactly. it can't be same time, same, same sense thing, but the word is sense. So what sense did Christ mean? And so, you know, if, if that is true, that's a true statement, and that's, that's where it stays. Mm-hmm. The mustard seed is the smallest seeds. So what sense, then, does fit into that truth claim of Christ? Exactly. We see now we, they, they're smaller seeds. Okay. Okay, that does nothing to do against Christ saying something true. It's just, in what sense did Christ mean it? And then we just have to go, well, we found a smaller seed. Okay, he didn't mean it, literally, small seed. And so, again, this is where we can live in the in the uh, spiritual um, world and also the natural world, too, and how everything bears the marks of supernatural and natural, whatever we describe as natural. But whatever supernatural is going to describe what is natural, I mean, this is a, I mean, you can have just a complete existential crisis right now thinking about this. But, you know, so what sense does that fit into? Well, apparently it's not literally the smallest seed ever in the whole world, but if it is the smallest seed that they've ever dealt with, it's still true. Yeah. And it goes back to the original argument. the you were you were pointing out, Adam, is where's the starting point? Again, yeah. Uh, are are we starting from uh, an existential view where we're saying, well, let's see if we can find the smallest seed in existence and compare it to the passage and see if it's right? Or are yeah. we starting with the view that Christ spoke truth mm-hmm. and then understanding the context in which he spoke and the yeah, world yeah. which he was speaking into uh, and, and who his audience was? But, uh, yeah, as far as that, Dave, I mean, sorry, I think I chased a, a rabbit a little ways no, there. No, correct. Uh, you know, yeah, if you could have uh, uh, talked about that, you know, what Adam's saying with the, the law of contradiction and non-contradiction, uh, you know, uh, I think a lot, of, a lot of points that he was bringing out in Scripture um, fade away really quickly at that mm-hmm. point. Um, you know, so... But again, you were there to present a prepared uh, negative case. Um, we know uh, all three of us have engaged in debates now, and uh, we we know that you don't have time to yeah. answer every single statement that somebody makes in a debate. You just don't have that kind of time. Um, so with the time that you were allotted, I think you did an excellent job. Uh, that one just troubled me a little bit because for some reason that one got even asked at the end after it had been dealt with in some ways. And so that's why that one kind of stuck out to me that you yeah. could have maybe dealt with that specific issue uh, from a different no, Right on. And I think you guys really uh, handled that well. And, and, you know, as you came up to me during that break time and kind of had, had shared, uh, actually, I think it was after the debate, you kind of shared some of that with me or in a conversation following. I think that that was really helpful. Uh, at least in my mind, of even you know dealing with the de- dealing with the matter in a more uh, in, a, in a little bit deeper level, if someone really was struggling with that, because someone very well could have that might have been why they asked it, you know. And, and again, my general sense of the room was that, and I could be dead wrong, but my general sense was that Phil presented an idea that was um, kind of unfamiliar to the audience. Um, my concept of inerrancy and totally trusting God's word was not unfamiliar. 
But what they wanted was to know why that was the case. And I think I made the, the, a good case, according to Scripture, as to why that's where we need to be. And I don't think that... So if, if I'm Phil, I would say, well, all Dave did was prove that one side of my position is, is you know, this is a, all he did was articulate that there's a, a, a spectrum that he believes is right. But I still think, and he might even say, well, Dave didn't refute all these other you know, spots on the spectrum. And I would say, no, I demonstrated that there's really only one spot you can be on the spectrum to be consistent with Scripture. Mm -hmm. And that's what true inerrancy is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. As a matter of fact, as I think about that, uh, you presented more of a positive case uh, in the debate than (laughs) Phil did, actually. He brought more of a negative case. Maybe we should have flipped positions and renamed the debate. Uh, But uh, no, it it was really well, and you did do an excellent job. Um, uh, The only other thing I was going to ask you about is, is uh, when we talk, you know, uh, all, all three of us here are Southern Baptists, right? Uh, And so uh, when we talk about the resurgence, um, what would have those guys involved, uh, you know, in the resurgence, um, what would the people at the convention uh, in those years have been saying um, about someone who holds Phil's position um, on inerrancy? How would the how would the response and uh, how would the Southern Baptist Con- Convention today look different if uh, the uh, Southern Baptist schools were teaching that that idea of inerrancy from that perspective so the first thing i would state is phil could not teach at any southern baptist seminary or any of the southern baptist seminaries undergraduate colleges because he could not sign the 1978 chicago statement so we have stated very clearly as southern baptist his position is to be rejected on the basis of the authority of scripture now, he could probably get a job at maybe, and I don't know, uh, well, he could probably get a job at uh, Southwest Baptist University, right, where if he wanted to teach philosophy, they'd let him teach philosophy and hold to that position. And I think that that becomes really detrimental. Mm-hmm. In fact, I would say that the conservative resurgence tried to say, no, there is a biblical position on this, and Baptists embrace the biblical position. And guess what? It's not just a Baptist position because that was a uh, very ecumenical, ecu- ecumenical, or ecumenical, excuse me, ecumenical document, meaning there was a lot of other denominations who were signing that, right? Uh, mm-hmm. There were multiple individuals who were assemblies of God. There were multiple individuals who were Presbyterian who signed that document, and they were, they were Methodists who signed that document, right? And so what you have with Phil is if you embrace that position— you have no means of being able to rein in what someone teaches if they say, well, I still believe that the Bible is, is inerrant. I still believe that the Bible's true. But yeah, John 18 really didn't have to happen. Matthew uh, 27 really didn't have to occur. There's a problem with that. You mm-hmm. couldn't work for the IMB or for the North American Mission Board and hold that position. So if if we cave to that, there would be no conservative resurgence, and we would be falling along the same position as the, as the Methodists are dealing with right now. So, so how important <laughs> is this topic? 
extremely important. Extremely important because, again, it comes down to, you know, the Genesis, Genesis 3, right? Hath God not said? Mm-hmm. And, and God has said, and God can say, and God expects us to respond to his word. His word is clear enough that we're expected to respond to it. And so he might have said, well, meaning, uh, meaning uh, derives from the intent of the text. No, no. Meaning derives from the mind of God. Yeah. 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 And I, uh, I mean, I would say that, yeah, this is a very important uh, issue, and we need to be talking about this in our churches. If you're a pastor, Sunday school teacher, small group leaders, you know, whenever there would be a chance to kind of break out and talk about what does it mean? What does the scripture mean? Um, what does it mean that they're the words of God? What is theonustas and all these kind of things? They seem trivial and simple. And in a world of postmodernism, this debate seems very stupid and ignorant. And, you know, why, like, why can't we just all get along and make, you know, what, what he, what Phil really wants is a synthesis, a a Hegelian synthesis um, sort of thing going on where you have a thesis, you have this antithesis. uh, Now I'm having problems like ecumenical. (laughs) (laughs) So you have the thesis and the antithesis. Um, You go through all those, which then equals a new thesis, which then what? makes a new antithesis, which then, so, I mean, truth is evolving. And so this is the, this is the postmodern world. And so we need to really take this to our people because we live in it. People are going to come out of it and we've got to preach the gospel to them. We've got to disciple them. So this isn't just a simple evangelistic issue. This is a disciples life issue. And this is the community of Christ's elect in local bodies issue that we need to make sure that we hit so that hopefully, you know, and it it all comes down to the Holy spirit and what God wants to do. Um, Hopefully he turns the hearts um, of our leaders of our country. He turns the hearts of the leaders of our churches um, back to him instead of, you know, judgment, which is still totally, it's all up to God and it's totally, he's totally just in doing so, especially if we're doing this with his word. So it's a very important topic, but I think we really hit, um, the, uh, I think just we've covered the it, argument. man. Without yeah. the uh, without the uh, the audio, I think we've hit it pretty darn good. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, yeah, I think uh, we can call this one a really good first actual podcast of 2020, 2020. Yeah. We've hit there, so we're still alive and God is still good. And uh, you know, just just to send you guys out on the podcast, you know, we we're still talking about those years and stuff. But um, Christ said today. Um, Hebrews talks about today. Um, we're just supposed to worry about today and seek the kingdom of God first. Right. And then that will be the starting point for everything. So you don't have to necessarily worry about tomorrow, but you do have eternity in your heart. So act if tomorrow exists and you'll find out when it comes to pass, but live with eternity in your heart today so that tomorrow you'll be able to live in it again all the while living by the Great Commission. And again, this subject is one of the many subjects we need to talk about in that Great Commission of going out, making disciples, teaching them to do what Christ has commanded, um, and knowing that Christ is with us always to the end of the age. So with that right, said, this is the Taggurit Podcast. I'm Ray Ray. I'm Dave. And I'm Travis. And Soli. Deo. Deo. Oh, well, let's do this again. we got to get this right. Come on. Okay. Okay. Slowly. Deo. Gloria. Gloria.